You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, hello, this is Kimberly, and I am your host of Real People OC, and as always, I am excited to be here in the studio weekly with you, featuring some of Orange County's best and brightest. It's really one of the favorite things that I do all week, so I appreciate that you join me on this journey. We are here every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m. We have an hour-long chat with interesting folks, and if you somehow miss our broadcast during that time, you can always come back to us any time of the day. You can go to KUCI.org for that. You can podcast. You can also go to iTunes and search College Radio and find us there. So there's all manner of ways that you can join us, and so I welcome you to do so. Um, Today's guests are just two lovely ladies sitting in front of me. Uh, I'm always saying that, aren't I? (laughs) But it's true. Um, I I really have fun uh, finding people, and so today I have to give another shout-out to my dear friend Jane Kennedy over at the Orange County Business Journal. She just manages to point me in the right direction and just has a really lovely way about cheering on some of Orange County's um, meaningful folks that give great contributions. So today is just a perfect example of that. We are lucky to have in our studio Vivian Kleeklack and Nora Caldwell. And many of you have probably heard Vivian's name. Vivian is the founding CEO of Human Options. It is a comprehensive multi-service agency for abused women and their children. Now, Vivian, I don't know, many of you know this, she has transformed a very small grassroots effort, which really began in the trunk of her car, into a very well-established safe haven from domestic violence here in Orange County. Huge, huge problem for us. And so she's managed to tackle that. Today, Human Options offers four major programs, an emergency shelter and 24-hour crisis hotline, um, a second and third step transitional housing community-based center for children and families and community and an educational program that is probably just as vital as any of those other steps. She's been doing this since 1981. They have served over 28, almost almost 30,000 individuals in direct services. They have responded to 50,000 calls. They have reached out to over almost 300,000 individuals through community education programs, just a vital service. Uh, Vivian, so many of you, I mean, I, I don't have to say, probably for about four years, people were saying, you need to meet Vivian Kleekak. <laughs> you need to meet Vivian Kleekak. And so finally is my opportunity to do so. In her background, she was a therapist and a leader. She was a social worker. She um, graduated with honors at Stanford, received her master's in social work at UCLA. She brings a wealth of information to us. Numerous awards have gone to Vivian and her organization um, that serves the needs of domestic violence in our in our community. Today and in the coming weeks, I'm really proud to announce this is a first for Real People OC, but we are going to take and devote more than one weekly <clears throat> radio show to this organization and their development. And a really critical issue facing so many people. And there were so many touch points that we could talk about today. We just knew that a one-hour discussion wasn't going to be enough 
to delve into um, Vivian's story and the organization and all the all the aspects that they serve in the community. There's so many things that um, circle around domestic violence, and we wanted to make sure we touched on just as many of those as we can. So today is going to be uh, one of the parts in a multi-part series of a discussion on domestic violence, learning about Vivian and the organization, and um, the following shows that we'll be doing will touch on the legal aspects, how it impacts campus life here at UCI, and um, the long-term effects, really, of domestic violence in our communities and in our society in general. So um, I'm also pleased to announce that Vivian brought with her today Nora Caldwell, the Fund Development Manager for Human Options. And Nora is going to share with us her unique perspective on the value of human options, both for her personally and for the community around her. She has been with um, with human options options probably since 1993, right? First as a young mother who escaped domestic violence in her own personal situation, and now happily remarried, she gets to enjoy um, a nice career helping and serving others too. So Nora Caldwell, Vivian Klikak, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> I, I did feel I like, breathe? Yeah, it was just beautiful. <laughs> Whenever I hear somebody speak about human options, I feel honored that we are connected to a community that cares and that has made a difference. Probably the most important thing I can say is to remind people that domestic violence is a crime of isolation and intimidation. You may have somebody in your family or your best friend who's a victim, but you probably don't know about it because it is the one crime in which the victim is more ashamed, more hidden, more blamed than the perpetrator. So probably the most important thing I can say, if you are worried about a friend, if you feel like maybe you might have that issue in your dating relationship or your marriage or your intimate partnership, call the hotline, 877-854-3594. The minute you speak to somebody at a hotline, you will know that you are not alone, you will break out of the isolation, you will break out of the intimidation, and you can hear that there are paths to freedom and feeling safe and good about yourself again. And this is what Human Options has been doing for 31 years. We started with a tiny hotline, myself and five volunteers, and we grew by connecting with our community. Each one of us had a network. We started having coffees at people's homes, and each coffee led to raising a little bit of money, $300, $500, and broadening our community. And slowly, over that first year, through community coffees, through outreach and writing grants to foundations, we raised enough money to one year later open the emergency shelter. And the other important thing I think I can say about that journey is never say never. We really did not know how we would move from an idea to an actual emergency shelter with staff 24 hours a day, providing 30 to 45 days of shelter, safety, counseling, support for mother and child. We didn't know, but by reaching out to our community and going step by step, within one year, we raised the funds and opened the shelter. Fascinating. You know, it was fun to just hear you launch right into this, but let's go back a little bit to that, you know, the trunk of the car. What what was it that made you move towards this movement? You worked with a couple other ladies. You might want to mention their names uh, to start. You. Tell me about this. Carolyn Sherm was our founding president of our board. Margaret Thoreau was one of the original founders, and then Anne Wright joined us, and so there were four of us in 1981. 
I have been an activist since my student days in the 60s. I wanted to change the world. I marched against the war in Vietnam for civil rights, worked against poverty, and got my master's degree in social work at UCOA. So this was a journey of wanting to make a difference. I was running the Orange County Department of Mental Health Clinic in Laguna Beach, and we wanted to educate our mental health advisory board, of which Carolyn Sherm was the president. And we wanted them to learn about major social issues in 1979. We knew about domestic violence. Domestic violence became part of the awareness of our community thanks to the women's movement. So in about the early 70s, it became clear that women were abused, that they were isolated, they were hiding, they had no resources, and the first shelters opened in about 76. So we started to look at these social problems, and I realized that even though I was a social worker, I was the director of a mental health clinic, I didn't know enough about domestic violence. So in educating our mental health advisory board, I became educated, and what we did was we started to interview clients who came to the mental health clinic. We had not asked on our intake form, are you a victim of domestic violence? We asked about depression and anxiety, but we didn't ask this crucial question. And as we began asking the question, we heard the stories. Every time a woman would head for home from work, her whole body would tighten. She would start to breathe shallowly and she, shallowly, and she would think, what's it going to be like when I get home? Every time a woman who was at home would hear the car door slam, she would say to her kids, okay, be quiet, go to your rooms, we don't want to upset daddy. And we realized that in families in nice, expensive South Orange County, women and children were afraid in their own homes. And Margaret, Carolyn, and Anne and I made a commitment that we wanted to help create a community where no woman and no child should ever be afraid in his or her own home. And that is still our vision in all the ways that we've grown and all the ways our program has transformed. That is still our core vision. We want children to be safe and their moms to be safe. It's shocking in doing the little bit of research that I was able to do before this show. One in three women are victims of domestic violence. You just have to sit with that number for a while and take it in. It's shocking. Even for us, it's hard to believe. But when we saw the clinic population, it was one in three. Many of those have sadly lived in long-term relationships where they didn't have an option. I mean, women who grew up in the 50s had no concept that they had a right to get out, nor did they have the economic skills to get out, and there were no services. There were no social services. So there's a hidden population. The one in three may include women who've been in a short-term relationship, who got out after two or three episodes, or those women who've been in it for years and years. We are the, one of the very few programs that has a special service for seniors. And I can remember one family that was particularly striking for me. We, we've learned about the woman through the county service, adult protective services. Neighbors had heard the husband yelling at her in a very cruel way. And so they called adult protective services who called our safe options for seniors counselor. As we began to work with this woman, she had been in this marriage for 50 years. She never thought she had a choice. Her husband told her she was nobody, she was nothing. She had no money because she didn't work outside the home. She came into our shelter, and through our legal services, we connected her with an attorney who was an expert in elder law, and he said to her, 
you can get out of this marriage. She said, how? I have no resources. He said, you own a house in Irvine. She said, well, no, I don't. My husband does. This was a woman who was so isolated, so impoverished in her ability to reach out. She didn't know about community property. Mm. Through our help, she was able to get a divorce, to get her half of the house, and move out of state to be with her daughter. So we all learned together, and we've had some miracles, some incredible opportunities to change lives. Um, Nora has her own story to tell, and it's a powerful one. I'm looking forward to hearing that. <laughs> what an entree, right, Nora? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you joined Human Options in 1993 as a young mom. Yes, I came through the doors in 1993. My daughter was 16 months old. Wow. And uh, actually found out about Human Options through my employer. Uh, the woman who had the office next door to me. Um, she knew? She she knew, and uh, she reached out, called me in the office one day, and had a number, had the had the 800 number, and um, she said, let's just call. I'll put it on speaker. You can, I'll ask all the questions. If you want to ask anything, you can, but let's just find out. Let's just get some information. And that's what we did. We found out about a support group that was happening in Laguna Beach, and my employer let me go. It was uh, Thursdays from uh, 9 to 11 in the morning. And those Thursdays, uh, if my my then husband called, um, back in those days, you know, you had like the switchboard. Sure. <laughs> and um, if he called and talked to the receptionist, uh, we, had a, we had a staff meeting. And when I got out of the staff meeting, she would give, him a, give me the message that he had called. Because if I didn't answer that phone right away, when he called me, I had to explain when I got home. Yeah. What was I doing that I couldn't answer his phone call? That you couldn't be there at his back and So home. that was my first step. And it was the first time when I got into that room, there were about seven other women there, and um, sat down and started hearing stories. And it was like, oh my gosh, I'm not alone, and I'm not crazy, and we're all married to the same <laughs> guy. Because it was, wow. yours, That mine says that to me, your, my my husband does that to me too. It was suddenly that sense of I'm not alone, and that there was hope, because I didn't know there was hope before. So, the organization Human Options, in a lot of ways, in the beginning, was predicated on the fact that people felt alone. Women, in particular, felt alone and couldn't couldn't go and advocate for themselves in a society that wasn't really ready to to help them. They didn't know how to help them and probably weren't gonna, you know, because if the statistics are what they are, those one in three women that were being abused were also connected to a one in three men that was in the workforce that was mm -hmm. probably in a mm -hmm. position to affect their outcome if they were mm -hmm. to seek help. Um, so giving that giving that place, it was the it was the group work that was happening in the grassroots time that really pulled women and strengthened them and got them out of their environments? It was the women's movement mm. that changed everything. Women fighting for women's rights and out of that came what we called the battered women's movement. And for the first time, women had a voice. Before that, if woman might go to her doctor or her minister and she would be told, go home, talk to your husband, cook a nice dinner. It was her responsibility and there were no social resources. Because women were less frequently employed, they had no economic independence, 
and the guilt and the shame that was put onto women, you are supposed to make your marriage work. Women are responsible for relationships. So women were afraid to tell their own mothers or their best friends, you want your parents to be proud of you. You want them to say, my daughter is married to a wonderful man. So there were many, many barriers to seeking help and there was no real path to help. When the domestic violence program started, we had hotlines, we had public service announcements. We began to educate the police, the clergy. The police used to say, oh, gee, uh, we'll send your husband to a hotel for a night and calm him down and he'll come back. It was not a crime until 1985, I believe. It was not a crime to hit your wife. Long, long traditions of patriarchy where the women were property and the English common law is you shouldn't hit your wife with anything wider than your thumb because you don't want her to be unable to work in the family. Oh, so long, long traditions the role where of, women... The role of thumb. Mm -hmm. Women had no voice. Women had no rights. <coughs> no, so this changed dramatically in the 70s, and domestic violence became a crime. And even then, there were barriers. It took a long time, and now... Most police departments are our partners. We work together. We train the officers. They make referrals to us. We work with hospitals. We train their staff. They make referrals to us. But it took a long time. In fact, when the law was passed, and this is a long time ago, and we have great relationships with almost all police departments, but a police chief of a major city in Los Angeles County said, it is a shame that my men will have to waste their time arresting otherwise law-abiding citizens. And I thought to myself, I bet robbers are law-abiding too part of the day. <laughs> but this crime was diminished. It was not given the credibility. Over time, again, as I said, our partnerships with law enforcement, with the judiciary have gotten stronger. But in the beginning, domestic violence programs were alone, and it took a long time to begin educating the powerful social forces in our community that should support women. Now a new awareness has happened, important health programs, the American Medical Association, the American Pediatric Association, are recognized that domestic violence is a major public health problem. Women suffer long-term health problems because of domestic violence. And so it's a social issue. It's of concern to us. Our community is at a loss. So we're working with a number of major health providers to educate the doctors and nurses and medical assistants and help them help a woman reach out for help. And we're very excited about that. We will be developing and expanding our services. Interesting. You know, I'm sitting here wondering, what, what do you think the biggest reasons were the resistance in the past to keep people from wanting to see this? Because it was there, but nobody really wanted to look at it. Was there some sort of social acceptance to this type of violent behavior that we just kind of grew accustomed to? I think that's true, uh, for the most part. I think it was always was looked at for a long time as this is a private family matter. Right, exactly. And so police, clergy, whatever, didn't want to step in because this was something that was going on behind closed doors between this, what they saw it as, this husband and wife. The more traditional the culture, the mm -hmm. more it's accepted. So over the past... 30-odd years, we have begun to change the culture. And it's no longer a joke to say to your friend, hey, an acceptable joke, hey, have you stopped beating your wife? Because our culture now says it's not okay. 
and we're continuing to change an age-old accepted way of being. So it's taken a lot of time, but it's more and more something that is not acceptable. Uh, when we work with people who come from a variety of different countries, one of the things we say, it's against the law to beat your wife in this country. <laughs> and I've heard, we, um, I've heard men say, well, then how will I discipline her? Again, again, the attitude that the man is the king, the woman is property, the woman is beneath him. Well, what we teach is that man and woman both deserve respect, and you never hit your wife. Oh, so clear and obvious to those of us that <clears throat> are younger and didn't have to forge that, um, that trail that the women's movement did. Um, you know, you mentioned that the more traditional, the more it was accepted, the more traditional the culture. Are the rates different of domestic violence in various different cultures? I don't know if I have the expertise to answer that question, but when I read my morning papers and I see about the rapes in India and Afghan women killed for going to school, I see that we have a long way to go to change those very, very traditional beliefs that kept women at the bottom. Women what's the name of the book, Women Own Half the Sky. Women are leaders in every way, and women are the peacemakers. So the more that we can bring together men and women who stand for peace. In the beginning, men were isolated from the movement. There was a fear that all men are going to be supportive of these guys. And over time, we have become much more a movement of men and women standing together. We're starting a new support group called Men in Motion, of men who take a stand against domestic violence, men who give their time, their talent, and their financial support. And we'll give you a phone number to later on if somebody is interested. You can, you can do that now. 949-737-5242, extension 211. That's Nora's number. Uh, and you'll also have our website, which is humanoptions.org. Men matter and we want to stand with men to make a difference we're doing some programs now as part of our teen prevention where we're training teen advocates who will be the teens who say to their friends it's not cool to call a girl that name no that doesn't make me laugh hey don't do it and that takes stepping outside that cultural acceptance and being the the bystander who takes a stand who makes a difference so we're very excited we know that it takes a long time to change a culture but it's in process and we believe the next generation will not have some of the same issues so if you're just tuning in this is real people oc and i am your host kimberly martin i have before me vivian Kleeklack and nora caldwell both with the organization human options and we are talking about domestic violence today we are beginning a multi um, multi-part series where we're going to really delve into many aspects of domestic violence the health effects um, the legal aspects so that we can give as much information out about this topic as we can how it impacts uh, young people on college campuses so um, join us I'm not sure when the next um, episode will be scheduled but we they are in the planning and so we will keep you informed as to when those will be coming online um, I love the fact that we're talking about social stigma. You know, it's really a powerful motivator once you change the minds of a few people and that social stigma starts to um, starts to come around. I'm thinking about the t the, something as basic as um, the way we parented our children with my grandmother and with my mother. I can remember sitting at a, a restaurant <clears throat> 
with my grandma and I think it was my then four-year-old was kind of being naughty and not really sitting in her chair and my grandma leaned over and she said a good swat on the the hiney would fix that (laughs) and you know it might have in her generation I'm not sure but the social stigma with just spanking children has really dramatically changed so much are we looking at um, links to that and to domestic violence are there some corollaries Oh, they're pointing at each other. No, you talk. No, you talk. You both must have an opinion, so I'm going to get it out of you for sure. <laughs> at our shelter, we do not allow any physical discipline. And early on, when we were just opened the shelter and we were in a small house in Laguna Beach where we had five or six families, one of the moms spanked her kid very aggressively. And we said to her, we don't allow spanking here. We will teach you how to use time out, how to use language, how to encourage your child, but we will not let you hit him. And she said, well, then how am I going to control him? And we said to her, that's probably what your husband said about you. And she stepped back. Spanking is a form of control. And what we want to do is help people to develop self-discipline and help them to teach their children that internal self-discipline. So we use nonviolent forms of discipline. Uh, We don't like spanking because we don't think it gives a child a sense to grow. It's a control from the outside person. External locus. Uh, You know, if you have a kid that runs in the middle of the street, you might spontaneously spank his rear because there's fear there. But most of the time, spanking is used as a form of control. And we believe they're much more preferable, better. And that seems to cut at the very essence of what the abuser is doing to his victim wife. Has there been any inroads into a possible medical diagnosis for why violence is prevalent in men? Is there any discussion on that? I'm really fascinated by if the statistics are this alarming, isn't there a like wouldn't we look for an answer as to how to treat it medically? Well, first of all, one thing we want to say is we know most guys are good guys, and we want them to be our partners. Uh, So this is not about men versus women. Why are men more likely to abuse than women? And it's uh, the statistics. Statistics, you never get the absolute true story, but basically it's 90% to 10% because women do hit sometimes. But mostly men are physically more capable. They're more aggressive because of the nature of the testosterone, and the culture has cultivated men as aggressive powerful so all those things all those things lead to men being more physically abusive uh there are verbal abuse is also a part of this that i think we should talk about verbal abuse is not if somebody says something snotty to you or calls you a mean name once a year verbal abuse is a systematic pattern of intimidation demeaning debasing so that the person begins to feel bad about themselves uh, people sometimes say, well, you know, that's not verbal abuse. Verbal abuse is nothing compared to physical abuse. Verbal abuse is a component of the continuum of abuse, and verbal abuse eats at the soul of the woman who has been verbally abused. So I think it's important to know that often <coughs> the abuse starts with that language, starts with demeaning and diminishing the person, ask, escalates to physical violence, or maybe doesn't, but just keeps the person so off balance, disconnected, that she begins to believe she's worthless. Mm. Again and again, and Nora Mm -hmm. said this, you gave me back myself. That's what we hear from our clients. Because somehow or some way they left it along the way. Do you want to talk Mm -hmm. about that a little bit, Nora? Well, and I'm sitting here shaking my head yes to everything that Vivian is saying. 
because it makes me think of things that happened for me and that that idea of that verbal and it's not only verbal you're worthless it's verbal if you do this i'm going to do that and then what happens when the violence occurs is now you've just backed up what you told me you told me that if i didn't get home on time you were going to hit me and now you have and so now i'm now i'm afraid because you've just backed up your threat and looking at that and those little by little for me um I had always, um, cooking was something. I grew up in my mother's kitchen, and she was a great cook, and she taught me, and uh, I had a lot of pride in that. And I had people that, you know, oh, we're going to have a potluck, nor has got to be the one to make this. Well, one of the things that he did to me was nothing was ever quite right. Uh, You know, you're not making, that doesn't taste quite right. So what had been a point of pride for me finally became where I was afraid I couldn't even boil water the right way. And it was that little by little, it was that verbal that happened. So it was verbal. Then threats were backed up by violence. I became more isolated. He isolated me more. And so those were the kinds of things that what Vivian's talking about, and I'm shaking my head, is Mm -hmm. those are the realities of things that happen in in the in living in a domestic violence situation, um, we have a caller. Are we okay to take a call? Oh yeah, how exciting! <clears throat> okay, <laughs> I just have to not <clears throat> blow it. <laughs> okay, caller, you're on the air. Hello, how are you doing, dear? You're doing very a very eloquent job of describing things. I really appreciate it. Okay, caller, do you have any questions that you'd like to ask us today? Yeah, I was going to say something because I have the trouble that she is speaking about. And sometimes, well, I've been diagnosed with mental illness. And sometimes the, the men can't, don't have a filter. And we really are sorry about that. I don't know about the violence part. I've never been violent to a woman. But I know sometimes that we are not as skilled as we should be with speaking about our feelings. Thank you. Um, care to stay on caller and let us respond to your sure, comment? Sure, I'll stay on. Okay. Thank you, dear. A lot of the work that we do in the high schools is teaching boys and girls how to have a healthy relationship. First of all, we describe what a healthy relationship, which is one of mutual trust, respect, where you can say your feelings, listening to each other, nobody puts the other person down, and we and nobody's excessively jealous, you don't track the other person. So a lot of kids don't even know what a healthy relationship is. And then we talk about the skills that it takes, and learning how to identify your feelings, first of all, instead of just wiping them away, shutting down, or pushing, or hitting somebody. So we do a lot of work with reaching before it gets to a point where it's a serious problem. That's great. I, I, that's great, because the point I'm at at my age, I'm like, I wish I had more help when I was younger. Because you know what I'm saying? When I, because I'm diagnosed, I mean, when I, my diagnosis hit, I was already in my 50s, and I, but my whole life has been that way, even as a teenager. So I, I appreciate what you're doing because I have a teenage son, and I need to I need to talk to him about this stuff. So I'm just letting you know that it's so much going out there. But I appreciate your hard work and your feelings, 
And, you know, some people are hard to deal with, and, but it's not because they really are hard to deal with. It's because who they are, they can't really grasp what's going on. So I appreciate everything you've done today. Thank you for your Thank comments. Thank you. Caller, let Thank me you. ask you a question, if you don't mind. Sure. Are, are you able to articulate in any fashion what you're feeling at the time when you're starting to sense that loss of control, which, which you oh, referred well, to as that loss depends. of filter? Sometimes, sometimes it's very eloquent. Sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like a master... Uh, poet or a master, uh, you know, scriptwriter, because I'm really using some really cherished words to describe how deep I feel, and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm just uh, outraged, just like you described, you know, F, excuse me, but F this and screw you, and, and it's, it's really hard sometimes. It's, it's a really, it's a hard thing for sometimes for us. And do people you, like that. Have you found anything that could calm you down from that place? Over the years, have you found anything well, that does depends. work? Okay, you have to describe what place I'm in because there's so many different places. So, I mean, if you're describing a, 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 a so altercation with my wife or something, no, we've never gotten that far. We have used uh, very choice words in the past, but, uh, you know, uh, you can't really, you have, you, what you're saying is you can't describe what emotion you're feeling. You can't, there's no prescription for sometimes what we're feeling. So, you know, sometimes we can't control ourselves, I'll be honest with you. I'd like and to give you the hotline number for you and your wife to call, talk to one of our counselors, and get a referral oh, great. to a so ca- counseling center. We, there are lots of counseling centers around that have ability to pay. Oh, no, I love I, I tell you what, there's so many great people in Orange County that really care about other people. It's, I've met them. Great people, so I appreciate it. Okay, our hotline is 877-854-3594. That's wonderful. Thank you, dear. Thank you. Thank you, caller. Okay. Bye. Bye. Well, you know, I love that what he said was that he he doesn't mean it. And I think that must be the crux of why so few people start to talk about it is because there is that rise in adrenaline. Whatever happens, happens, whether it's verbal or this physical thing that we're trying to address in, in this discussion but yet there's that come down side too where they go back to what they feel is normal and their partner feels very much a part of that cycle mm-hmm. how you know, do you help we, we talk about the cycle of violence uh in the cycle of violence there's what we call the tension building phase you go along your life maybe there's a moment of irritation of irritability uh you're angry, but you don't talk about it. Then maybe there's another moment a little while longer. And if you have somebody who has <coughs> anger issues that they cannot control, is verbally, physically abusive, there will be what we call the outburst, the explosive incident. And maybe the first time it's a push. Maybe the first time it's hitting the wall. Maybe the first time it's yelling and not even pushing, but terrifying the woman. And then there's Early on, what we call the honeymoon phase, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you, I'm so sorry I scared you, I'm an immediate connecting, and then the flowers and the romance. Well, the first time we open the shelter, shelters are confidential locations. But before that woman actually got to the shelter, three dozen roses had arrived at our office, which is not confidential, from her husband, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. So there's that push-pull if you love somebody, you want to believe everything's going to be all right. And Nora has expressed that beautifully, so I'm going to pass on. <laughs> and I, when you think about that, because when you do love someone, and there's probably everybody out there has had someone that you care about or that you feel that you've, you've been in love with at some time, 
you always you want to think the best of them. I don't want to think that he meant to do that. And when he says, I'm so sorry, I want to believe that because I love him. And it's not, if it happened every day, You'd be out of there. I, you would be gone. <clears throat> right. But it's not happening every day. And it's, but as this, as this progresses, that cycle of violence that, that Vivian was talking about kind of becomes shorter and shorter and shorter. So you have less time that happens between those, those explosion stages as it, as it continues to progress. And those were things that I saw for me where it might have only happened occasionally but then it began to happen more frequently. And then it's harder to say, but you're supposed to, you, you love me. Right. So over time, <clears throat> the honeymoon phase disappears and the perpetrator begins to blame the victim because mm -hmm. nobody wants to think they're a perpetrator. Everybody lives in some level of denial and minimization. If you have a, a mole on your arm and you say, oh my God, I wonder if that's cancer, I better call the doctor. You quickly go to, it's probably nothing, and you do your best to think about it. Now, most of the time, it is nothing. But in the cycle of violence, denial and minimization keeps it going. And the victim and the perpetrator are almost both minimizing, denying, because you want your life to be good. Women are caught often, and I say women because, again, the victim is 90% the woman. That doesn't mean that we don't honor men who are victims and we provide services for them as well. Women oscillate 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 between hopefulness and mm -hmm. helpfulness things are going to get better he said he's sorry we'll go to counseling we'll change this and helplessness you know i don't have a job i'm ashamed my parents won't help me maybe it is my fault he says i'm stupid i'm too fat i'm too skinny whatever it is so if that, you, that if you had fixed this right yeah. if you had just been here on time <clears throat> if you just hadn't talk to that, answer that man's question, I wouldn't have gotten upset. So it becomes, it becomes, the ownership comes, falls on me. That, that leads us to a good question that might be helpful right now. We're, um, we're coming up to where we have about 20 minutes left, but red flags, what are some of those red flags? We started talking about those. You know, we, Nora has said in her public speaking, which she does a lot, that at Human Options, she learned the red flags. Uh, it's wonderful when somebody sends you roses. It feels great. But if he sends you roses every single day and calls you 10 times a day or texts you 28 times a day, we've had situations where people get to 100 texts a day. Or if you don't answer, if you don't answer that cell phone, and he's, and you know, we obviously started this program before there were cell phones, so it was then a regular phone call, but the principle is the same. Where were you? Why didn't you answer? Why didn't you pick up? Why didn't you call me back right away? I remember a teenage girl talking about how her boyfriend wanted her to sleep with her cell phone so he could get her at 1 or 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. It is that excessive, uh, intense romantic courtship can slide into control. And it's, it's a subtle slide. When you realize, you know, I haven't hung out with my girlfriends for a month because he's always saying, oh, come on, I'd rather be with you. They don't appreciate you the way I do. And then it becomes a criticism of your girlfriends or your parents. So slowly you get isolated. So if you haven't talked to somebody outside that relationship who you used to talk to for maybe a week or whatever, that's a red flag. 
If you feel judged and criticized, that's a red flag. If there's a lot of jealousy, I heard you talking to the postman. Why are you talking to the postman? There's a red flag. <laughs> a healthy relationship has mutual respect, has a degree of autonomy, encourages you to have outside interests and be close to friends and family. What else do you think? Two things that come up because they were things that applied for me was um, um, past relationships and the fact that n none of the other women that had ever been involved, including his sisters and, and mom, everybody was, they were awful. They had done mean things to him, you know, um, so that he had no healthy relationships or no positive words to say about other women that had been in his life. He was never the fault. Big red flag. <laughs> yeah, big red flag. And the other that was interesting to me that I would never have thought about was um, pets. Oh, How, what do you mean? Are they mean to pets, you mean? Uh, and you know what? My, um, the man that I was, was married to at that time, yes, was oh, very cruel to the animals that we had. Well, you know, one of the things that we're learning, I don't know if it's because Dexter's on TV and we're learning about the average mind of the sociopath, but I don't know why I feel well-versed on this subject, but um, maybe it's CSI, you know, all of the criminal mind shows that we're watching, but they do that profiling of the sociopath and how the big red flags are. They were bedwetters and they were mean to pets when they were children. <laughs> Is there a profile? I, I don't know that we know abuser? that. I don't think we've had scientific studies, but I think the commonality is projection. Mm -hmm. The inability to take responsibility for your own behavior. And when we work with men and women, we teach identifying your feelings, assertive behavior, asking for what you want, taking responsibility for your own behavior. You know, I yelled at you because when I told you I was feeling really sad today about my job and you just went about your business, I felt lonely, sad, like you didn't care. I yelled at you and I take responsibility for yelling. And mm -hmm. I would like to ask you to, when I tell you something that's important to me, please stop reading your mail and pay attention. That's an example of a conversation we might teach because the projection is the commonality in any perpetrator and the introjection is the commonality for the victim and maybe she didn't start out that way but she becomes a to... She learned that to, behavior. Yeah, it's my fault if only I did something differently. Um, not everybody is a sociopath, not everybody is a narcissist who hits, but everybody who hits, everybody who verbally demeans in a systematic way the person they're supposed to love needs to take a look at the fact that they're projecting something that belongs to them onto the other. Onto the other. Okay, we have another caller. Are you ready? <laughs> okay, caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Um, hey, uh, I was going to ask you, what's your opinion on generation, 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 passed down uh, family, let's say, uh, you know, from the 1920s to, to, to this generation? You know, just uh, basically uh, no, no male model that's a good model and all that kind of stuff. You, I mean, what's your opinion? Do you think it's passed down generation to generation because of the family they grew up in, or is it just a, a learned uh, experience? Well, I'll we, hang up and I'll, I'll listen to your uh, response. Thank you. The research on domestic violence is that it is an intergenerational problem, that children learn what they live, 
and we've heard this from men who were in our batteries treatment program that though they were appalled by their father or stepfather's behavior of hitting the mom and never thought they would do it it's almost imprinted in the early socialization so a lot of what <clears throat> we do now is working with children is helping them to identify hurt feelings helping them to break through the cycle of woundedness the most recent research shows that domestic violence, early childhood trauma impacts the brain. Dr. Bruce Perry, a well-known researcher who showed that it actually leaves a higher level of cortisol, which is the stress hormone, so that because the children live in fear and awareness that family life is scary and something could happen, there could be an eruption, they march in the world as if they were always in fear and so they're out of control sometimes, they're agitated, they're anxious, they're irritable, they don't do well in school and so our therapeutic intervention with young children can help heal the brain. The brain can heal and the child can learn new patterns that break from the family tradition. This is new information, the research is new, the therapeutic techniques are new, we're very excited about them. We want to help families build a new path. We want kids to be able to calm that brain and move forward in a healthy way and build healthy relationships. So, but the caller brings up a good point on this passing it down. And wouldn't that be what what the organization is really dedicated to breaking is that cycle of yes. violence? Yes. Um, let's talk about what some of those first steps are in case this caller or anybody else listening to is interested in, in being that person that's going to break that for their family and for the next generation. Well, children learn what they live, and so we do a lot of parent education. We work with high school students. We also do a lot of what's called secondary and primary prevention programs, working with small children and ideally teaching their moms because we have access almost always to the moms, not always to the dads, but to the parent or parents, a healthy form of parenting, a healthy way of expressing feelings. We have a special program called the Incredible Years and we're promulgating that throughout all of our clients. It's a cultural change because as you pointed out, spanking used to be okay uh, domination by the male parent used to be okay. Children's voices were not to be heard. And so we're going through a lot of cultural changes that hopefully will help children to express themselves in, in good, healthy ways. Yeah, the uh, spare the rod, spoil the child right, kind of philosophy. Right, right. <laughs> you know, even in even in my family, you know, I had great parents, so this is in no way a reflection on what I received as a child. I had wonderful parents. But even just those little bits of differences between the way they parented me and the way that I parent my children, you see how dramatic the changes are. And back to that concept of stigma, how important it is that we as a society decide to change together because what a difference that makes for us today than 40 years ago when when uh, we didn't have any support. You know, not every abuser comes from a violent family and not every victim comes from a violent family. And one of the things we've seen in a number of relationships, I can't say it's scientifically proved, is that often the young woman is a caregiver. She has been raised, as women often are, to be the caregiver, to be solicitous, to be supportive. And the young man has an expression of a lot of pain because he's come from a bad family. Not necessarily bad family, that's not a correct word, from a family where there was hurt or violence. And so she believes that her love will save him. And so that relationship begins with a lot of tender connection. 
and over time it shifts because her love cannot save him. Nora's nodding here. <laughs> Nora's yes. nodding, going yes. Well, so that's very typical, though, for women in general, isn't it? Our our desire is to create and to fix, and fixing is part of that, you know, ability to create. I, yeah, that nurturing, mm-hmm. I think, is is a big part. At least for me, it was a big part. It was a big part of of who my mother was, and so I. Because I loved this man, I wanted to help him. I wanted to make life better for him. And what I learned when I went to Human Options was that wasn't really me. It wasn't up to me to, to fix him. So I, I, I realized that uh, that, was, that was what he needed, he needed to do. Do you agree? You know, love is not supposed to hurt. That's one of our themes in teenage work with the teens. And when you're loving somebody who you want so much to bring into the light of joy and happiness, but he is verbally or physically hurting you, then that's not love coming from him, and you cannot fix him. You know, there is a need for each person to learn to be able to take care of self and for the woman to give up that vision that if only I were more loving, more supportive, uh, mm-hmm. came home earlier from work, cooked better meals, I could save him. We do not save somebody whose behavior is bad. We help them to identify that behavior and seek help. There are lots of counseling programs available for couples, for people who are having anger issues. It can be changed, and we are here to help. So for the men out there listening that feel like they want something to support, maybe maybe they feel they just have a small bit of this in mm-hmm. them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're not actively beating on somebody, or maybe they are. Um, what resources do they have? Is there a hotline for them to call? I don't think there's a hotline. That's interesting, but there are lots of programs for anger management. There's counseling programs. The Center for Children and Families, they could call. And they could call our Center for Children and Families and get counseling, and that is 949-757-3635, or they could call the hotline and get a referral to a variety of counseling groups. And again, that number is 877-854-3594. In our community at this time, there are a variety of resources to help those of us that need to get support to take better charge of emotions, whether it's alcohol, drug abuse, whether it's depression, anger, anger pushing out on other people, anxiety. There are sources for help, and Human Options is one of many. Our specialty is helping abused women and their families, but we will be able to connect any caller to a correct resource. How many, so uh, Nora, you're what's Mm -hmm. called a graduate of the program. Yes. Tell me what that means. (laughs) Um, Gosh, what does that mean? I mean, for me, that means um, I have hope. I have hope now. Mm. Um, It means that I received safety and healing, and I found a way forward to a violence-free life. it means that I could identify what a healthy relationship really looks like because I wasn't really sure before. And I know I was telling you this before we got on the air, but uh, I have been, I'm happily married uh, for, gosh, for 18 years now. I have a wonderful husband, and he is human options approved. I just, <laughs> I loved it when you told me that. I yeah. felt so sorry for him and we, dating we, you. We had a stamp. We had a stamp. 
<laughs> what must that have been like for him? You know, it wasn't the stress of being taken home for the family, but being taken to the office holiday party was probably really overwhelming. <laughs> I want to emphasize what Nora said. We consider ourselves far more than a shelter. In the beginning, all these programs were shelters because that was what was needed, an emergency safe place. Safety is our first product. We will get you to a safe place. Healing is our second part of the journey, and that involves a variety of therapies for mom and children, involves right brain therapies like drama, music, art, involves speaking with a therapist, and then a way forward. We will help you figure out your next step. Where will you live? How will you support your family? We have legal advocacy. We have case managers who walk every step with you. We have so many wonderful stories of lives changed, We've done formal research. One of the stereotypes about domestic violence is that victims always go back. Well, if a woman has safety, healing, and a way forward, she doesn't go back. Our research shows that one year or more after graduation from shelter or second step, 92% of our clients are, clients are violence-free. And that is research that very few people have done. And it shows that if you provide the resources, women do not go back. Oh, that's interesting because so many people go back because they find out they don't really have a choice. They have to go. They can't provide a home for themselves or a shelter for their child. Um, what a big difference that makes. They can go to your program and seek that immediate care for what period of time is that first step? Shelter is 35 to 40 day, 30 to 45 days, excuse me. And then the second step? Not everybody goes to second step because obviously there are only so many apartments, but it's a year-long program. Okay, so a goodly amount of time for you to rewrite your own story if if you need to. Um, I'm so struck by the caller that's called in, you know, a couple times to to listen to us. Caller, if you're listening, thank you so much for joining us on this discussion. I think I think it's really interesting that it was a man that called in. Yes, yes, I'm glad and, he called, and I'm glad he called too. And I think it helps us to address that um, that. The victims have a place to go, but it's probably just as important that, that any perpetrator has a place to go as well. Is that correct? Yes. We do not demonize the man. We do not accuse. We stand to support and create a better, safer, healthier culture for everybody, a world where no woman or child ever has to be afraid in his or her own home. That's where we are, and we are excited to be working with men who want to make a difference, our men in motion group, men who support us through funds, time, and treasure. We are a journey of a community of caring to help those in need. And we, we can't forget sisterhood. We ha also have a support group for uh, women, and uh, they uh, come together four times a year, uh, support. We, we call them, they're the emergency cookie jar. Um, <laughs> I love that. For the, for the shelter, so they're able to help us in in kind as well as uh, other donations to kind of fill those needs that aren't filled by grants so um, they're a great group too it is important to say that most of our funds come from our community from individual gifts from our events you want to hear about our events call Nora or me 949-737-5242 extension 211 or 222 or go on our website humanoptions.org you can be a part of support you can join one of our support groups men in motion or the sisterhood you can make a donation you can find out about how to volunteer we are a community of caring, and we welcome your support. 
And those donations go directly towards providing that housing, that safe harbor for somebody that wants to get out. I was so struck when I first started to look at the website and learn about your organization is the big red button that's like the panic button on your website so that if an individual was looking on the website for information and they needed to quickly be launched out of that so that if the perpetrator was in the room, they could protect themselves from being from that. So so striking, and it just it just shows you how how serious this issue is. For those of us, and I've been fortunate all my life to have gentle men in my life. For those of us who've lived in warm, loving families, it's hard to imagine what it's like to be afraid of the person who's supposed to love you, and that is the cycle that we break again and again. So that love means love. Beautifully said. Um, be looking for in the coming weeks some more from Human Options and um, more information about domestic violence both here on campus and uh, the legal issues around domestic violence. Uh, Vivian Kleeklack and Nora Kolba. It's Kleeklack. It's Klee-Kak. like all K's. People always have trouble with it. You have no idea how many times I've right spelled the first, that name. For the first no problem. several times. But no problem. I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> and Nora Caldwell, it's been a delightful hour. Thank you so much for being here with Thank us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. thank you, and we'll thank see some you. more of you in the in the coming episode. Well, and, thank and you and a shout caring. out to Jane Kennedy. Oh, Thanks, Jane's Jane. Thank you, Jane, and yeah. thank you Jane, for caring enough you. to invite us. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you, Orange County Business Journal too. So up next, if you are still staying around with us here at KUCI, you will enjoy Counterspin and then Matt Kaplan with Planetary Radio. So we thank you for joining us each and every week um, on Orange County Real People OC. Thank you.